And welcome back to another episode of Colo. This is your host, Rabbi Hill Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Colo, and it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Rabbi Elon Feldman. This is a very exciting episode for me, particularly having grown up in Atlanta, spending much of my childhood in Rabbi Elon Feldman's shul, um, allows me to ask him questions that I know that everyone's going to love to hear and discuss. We we do discuss, just, just to give you a little bit of a snapshot, we discuss what it's like to be an assistant rabbi under his father, and then what it's like to succeed one's father while their father is still relatively young. We discuss Rabbi uh, Feldman's early blunders as a rabbi, his take on out-of-town versus in-town, the incredible journey of him raising the shul's mechitza, and how to deal with a shul, a breakaway shul, in one's own community just down the street. We also discuss some serious and sensitive issues that are currently going on, and we end off on a little bit of a lighter note. We talk some Atlanta Braves talk. So a great episode. I'm sure you're all going to enjoy very, very much. To sponsor a Colote episode, email me, sponsorcolote at gmail.com. Once again, sponsorcolote at gmail.com. This episode's sponsor is Restart. Restart is a career development platform which offers complimentary access to log in and work with live career advisors who will help find meaningful employment opportunities that match what you are looking for. To learn more, visit www.joinrestart.com. Once again, www.joinrestart.com and learn about your employment opportunities today. And without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Elon D. Feldman began his service to Beth Jacob as its assistant rabbi in 1980 and as senior rabbi in 1991, having had the unique privilege of serving in the community in which he was raised and succeeding his father, Rabbi Emmanuel Feldman, who held this position for 39 years, Rabbi Elon's leadership provides a level of continuity and stability which typifies his shul. Rabbi Feldman has played a key role in the development of the community's infrastructure, he is a founder of Torah Day School of Atlanta and serves as its rabbinic advisor. He was instrumental in bringing the Atlanta Scholars Kolal to Atlanta, and he serves as dean of the Atlanta Cautious Commission. Rabbi Feldman, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I read in your bio that you grew up in the city where your father was the rabbi, and I know Atlanta was very different back then. Wasn't wasn't too long ago, but it was a couple of decades ago. So tell us a little bit about what was it like growing up in Atlanta? What was Atlanta like then? And uh, what was it like growing up as your father as the rabbi? Well, first of all, Atlanta, it seems to me through uh, retroactive adult eyes, that Atlanta was a very laid back town. It was not a big um, commercial center. It wasn't the big uh, hotel uh, conference center that it is now. We didn't have a major league baseball team till I was uh, 11 or 12 years old when I became addicted. Um, it was uh, a very a sleepy town, a very nice southern town. Uh, there were about 20,000 Jews in the community. As far as I know, my brothers and I were the only yarmulkes on the heads of young people outside of the uh, Limudah Kodesh part of the day in the day school because Limudah Chol part, there were many kids who took off their yarmulkes um, in those days because it was just uh, something unusual for them. So it was a it was a totally different kind of type of a community at that time. Uh, and at the same time, um, we knew we were special. Somehow, uh, my parents managed to find a way for us to feel special and not weird, not the odd man out, but somehow the ones who were privileged to uh, to wear yarmulkes and to keep Shabbos and, and so forth. And what what are some of the early lessons that you learned from your father? 
Number one, patience. Number two, patience. Number three, patience. Um, my father is an unbelievably patient man. Uh, he did not uh, get frustrated, it seems, even though there were plenty of reasons to be frustrated. Uh, in retrospect, people like to talk about my father having turned the town upside down. Uh, he, his impact is still being felt here, but for the first 10 years, for example, that he was here in Atlanta, there was not a single Baal Tshuva. And not a, as far as I know, not a single lay person who was Shomer Mitzvah under the age of 80. Um, and so he did not see results from his efforts right away. And one has to remember that in the, in the 1950s, there was no, the word Baal Tshuva movement did not exist. There was no movement. There was no Baal Tshuva. There were only from Jews either staying from, from their parents or in stopping to be from and going conservative. So, uh, you know, but so that was one thing, uh, patience. Uh, another thing is just really authentic love and respect for human beings, even if they weren't Shomer Mitzvah. And that's what worked. What worked was that, that people knew that my parents cared for them, respected them, and believed in them. So when did you feel that, you know what, this rabbi gig might be my future? When was that time period for you? Relatively late. I'm glad you asked that question because everybody but me knew that I was going to be a rabbi. Uh, so I, I don't like doing things predictably. But uh, for everybody but me, this was predictable. I had no uh, real interest in being a pulpit rabbi. I was learning in Eretz Yisrael uh, in the Mir Yeshiva uh, in, um, when I was about 20 years old. And uh, believe it or not, Henry Kissinger influenced me to become a pulpit rabbi, even though he doesn't know me and, and, it, and he probably couldn't care less about me. But he was doing his shuttle diplomacy between Egypt and Syria and Israel, trying to negotiate kilometer 101. That's something you wouldn't know about because you were born after that. But uh, uh, during the time that he was there, there was just an obsession with a few kilometers of sand in the Sinai Desert and the most powerful man in the world representing the United States, Kissinger, is flying back and forth. And this was a, he was staying at the King David Hotel, and I went a couple of times just to see the commotion. Uh, and I saw it. Uh, at that time, all the networks that the United States had, CBS, NBC, ABC, all the, yeah, they're all following him around obsessively. And I realized in a very powerful, palpable way how absolutely central uh, the Jewish people is. And I said to myself, I have to do something with my hands, so to speak, to help save the Jewish people because we were and still are dying on the vine. Um, and um, the only way I knew, obviously, Talmud Torah has tremendous power. Um, but the only way I knew to do something with my hands was to try to grow a kahila. And I had no idea, no plan to come back to Atlanta, specifically. My wife and I spoke uh, about, uh, metaphorically, about Albuquerque, New Mexico, although we had no specific aims of that. But um, when, when the assistant rabbi position opened up here, uh, to my surprise, uh, people suggested that uh, they look into me, and uh, I thought it was kind of cute. I came down for an interview, and then uh, things happened. So what, what was that like? I mean, you're stepping into an area where you almost, you know, you have your father over your shoulder. Was that awkward? Like, what was that process like? For some reason, it wasn't awkward. Um, I'm capable of making any situation difficult. Uh, but for some reason, this was not awkward. I don't know why. I'm sure it's uh, to my father's credit. He, I, I, Looking back, now that I've had assistant rabbis working with me and under me, so to speak, um, uh, I see what it must have been like for him. And I think he handled the situation with a lot of wisdom, gave me a lot of space, and at the same time gave me uh, appropriate direction. Um, it wasn't awkward. Uh, I, I had an internal sense that I was coming to the table with something special to offer. 
uh, not that he didn't have anything special to offer, but it wasn't what he offered. And so I, I never felt uh, the, the pressure of comparison. I never felt like I had to live up to anything. I respected him and admired him. And matter of fact, I was a connoisseur of his drushas. I would just love to hear him speak because he was a master, is a master speaker, an artist, really. Um, but uh, it wasn't awkward for some. I, I, to this day, I don't understand why it wasn't awkward, but it wasn't at all. It was very natural. Well, one of the things that you hear people say when there's a successor is like, oh, you have big shoes to fill. Did you feel that way at all? And if not, what are your shoes? It's a great question. Um, I heard that often, and I internally said to myself, gee, I didn't realize I had such pressure to fill those shoes. I, I'm just going to be myself and do my thing. I never felt pressure to fill those shoes. And plus, there's a certain intimacy that one has with one's father um, that even though you respect him and all for his accomplishments and for the maybe the larger-than-life uh, image that he has in the community, he's your father. You play ball with him. You see him in his slippers and so on and so forth. So, yeah, he's a great man. Uh, he's an accomplished person, and and he's my father. So I don't, I'm not filling anybody's shoes. I'm just doing my job, you know. So um, uh, I didn't really have that problem. I, I, I thought it was it was humorous when I'd go visit somebody in the hospital, even after my father retired and he was physically not in the city. Uh, I'd walk into a hospital room and the person in the sick bed would say, "How's your father?" Because you know they they grew up with him, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So maybe somebody else with a different personality might have found that uh, chafing or, or uh, disturbing. I, I just chuckled and I said, my father's fine. How are you? <laughs> you know. So, are you comfortable sharing any differentiations between yourself and your father in terms of style, hashkafa, approach or anything? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't mind sharing differences. I think my father would probably, my father would be the first one to, to uh, to note, note some differences. First of all, my father always points out to me something that he admires and is jealous of, which is really funny. Uh, and it's something that I don't admire about myself. Um, I'm a very spontaneous speaker, um, which means that I almost never speak from notes. My father is a writer who speaks beautifully. And so my father writes but not word for word. My father writes uh, writes notes, but his notes are very meticulously planned openings, middles, and and endings. And I don't even know, honestly, sometimes don't even know what I mean to say when I start talking. I just have a general idea, um, and that, uh, that that does that doesn't always work so well. By the way, it's not a great idea. But my father speaks ad- with admiration about that difference. He wishes he could do that. But uh, the re- he could do that. He just doesn't want to do that because he likes to uh, be thorough and be prepared and be balanced and, and, and be artistic and be uh, creative in his presentation. That's his style. So that's one, one you know, very superficial difference. I mean, it's a real difference, but it's uh, superficial. My father uh, also has said that he feels that the leadership that he provided was appropriate for the kind of culture that presided at that time. And that uh, the culture was shifting from the time that I came in and succeeded him. Um, the, uh, you know, I was, uh, I mean, my father was also fresh out of yeshiva when he came down here. But yeshiva in 1952 was different than yeshiva in 1980. And um, I had some adjusting to do, even though this was my hometown and I, there was nothing really shocking about it. Coming from Yeshiva back to Atlanta, having learned in Kohl for several years and coming back to Atlanta, I was much more intense, um, uh, much less playful at the beginning. Uh, my father had a very relaxed style, uh, created connections with the Balabatim through kibitzing sometimes. Uh, he might have even played tennis with one or two people. Um, I did, but I did it in secret, uh, you know, and um, I was much more intense, certainly at the beginning. Um, and intensity is not things, is not something that uh, a typical Balabas can appreciate. 
Balabatim are not driven in the morning to find out how they're going to steig during the day. That's not the first thing. On it. They, they want it. They certainly want to grow, and they certainly want a relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, But they have a different way of going about it. So I was very intense at the beginning. Uh, there are other differences. There are other differences. But uh, I was also a, a blessed to be a Talmud of my Shver, Rabbi Shmuel Yaakov Weinberg. That's how. And uh, and the way I taught Chumash, the way I taught uh, you know classic texts, was very, was heavily influenced by my father-in-law, and uh, my father had a totally different approach. Uh, the way that he taught, I would say that his way was much more inspiring to a lay person because there was there was a tremendous amount of um, just uh, color. And the way that he assessed uh, various figures uh, in Chumash and various dynamics and various drama and drama in the, in the Chumash. And I was much more text-based text -based and very, very interested in developing whatever I said out of the text. So the difference is that way. So spontaneity is something big on your list. It's actually, I have to say, the reason why I wanted to do this interview, because, you know, sometimes you think, um, who can I do an interview with that I don't need to share the questions ahead of time, that I could spring <laughs> anything upon, and you came to mind. Um, so let me ask you, um, would you say that you took the shoal more to the right, to the left, kept it the same, just grew it? And you could give whatever your answer you want, but it does not have to be politically correct. Yeah, don't worry. I, I'm, I have not been accused of being politically correct. Um, the uh, I, First of all, I reject the notion of right, left, and center. Those terms are borrowed from politics, and the relationship with God is not political. It's personal, and it's real, and it's internal. So the idea of moving the shul to the right, to the left, uh, um, um, you know, the way it's used, the way it's used, I would have to say I moved the shul to the right. But there wasn't a moment in my internal dialogue in which I said, I want to move the shul to the right. There's only one thing I wanted to do, and that is to build from where we were to make it possible for a person to have a full and well-developed relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu through observance of mitzvahs and through studying Torah. Now, some people call that moving to the right. If you have a shul where the overwhelming majority of the members drive to shul on Shabbos, and then 15 years later you have a shul where a significant number of members walk to shul on Shabbos, can you say the shul moved to the right? The shul always said, God gave us a Shabbos, and here's how to observe it, and here's how to get there step by step, drop by drop, slowly. And then when they get there, you can't say people move to the right. It's the same message, except they actually bought it. So, um, so I reject the whole notion of moving to the right. Yes, we now have on on on, on Friday night at Kabbalah Shabbos and Marav, we have 170 men, and out of those 170 men, 45 of them are wearing black hats. So, does that mean that we know how we're going to vote in the next presidential election? No. It just means that 45 people are wearing black hats. So, uh, you know, so I, I, and I certainly have no desire to imitate any culture that exists in the from world, which means uh, I don't want Atlanta to become like Lakewood. I don't want Atlanta to become like Baltimore. I don't want Atlanta to become like New York. In other words, I'm not possessed by a feeling that in order to be real, we have to become like anybody. We just have to move forward. We have to learn Torah. We have to observe Shabbos. We have to educate our children. We have to have lies of Kedusha. We have to know where America is going off the deep end into devastation and moral corruption. We have to know those things. And if we talk straight about that, maybe some people will call that moving to the right. Those who are dishonest about um, the uh, sickness in American society and somehow want to embrace that, embrace the entertainment and the music of American society and still be from, they're not to the left. They're just corrupt. Mm -hmm. That's politically incorrect. Okay. Well, no, I, and I want to, yeah. I want to jump on something you said. You don't want, you're not looking to make Atlanta like any other town. You're not like, liking to, you don't want to make it like any other city. So there is, 
is the, let me ask you, is there a time and place where you do want to look at another city to kind of see, you know, what could we be doing like them so we could get better? Is there ever a time you could look at another? Oh, yeah, always, always. Other cities have tremendous uh, aspects and dimensions to them that I'd like to emulate. Uh, like I want to take, uh, you know, I want to take uh, uh, the uh, Hatzala. Hatzala. We need that, but we need Hatzala. And how do you do that? I have to learn from other cities, more, more developed cities. Uh, we have um, what's in, uh, it's been literally evading my, my the, the word, the uh, the group that takes care of uh, practical emergencies. Chaverim, uh, Chaverim. Yeah, Chaverim, right, right. So I'm very jealous of uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, which has Chaverim. That's my son-in-law's rub there. And they have Chaverim and we don't. So I feel inferior. But uh, so I want to copy Chaverim. And there's, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And the tremendous Bikocholim and, and Chesed organizations and so on and so forth, more sophisticated and more developed and mature cities have all kinds of things that, that we want to imitate. Um, absolutely. But the culture, uh, I want it to be Atlanta's culture. Every city has its own personality. And um, there's no reason to try to imitate what, what some other city has developed, that's their personality, that's their culture. Uh, and listen, once we're talking straight, and I don't, I really have no idea who's listening to this, and um, if uh, if you want to have a relaxing time, you can skip the next part of the, of the discussion, but not everything in the front community is so positive. Most things are, and Baruch Hashem, and Baruch Hashem, we have each other, and Baruch Hashem, we have a front community, but there are aspects of from culture, which we do not want to in, uh, uh, import to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, so we want people to feel comfortable wearing a blue shirt and not have that mean that there's something uh, about the Yerushalayim that's lacking because the color of one shirt should not define a person's premius, right? Uh, there are communities where you can't wear a blue shirt and you will not be taken seriously. That is a superficial assessment of a human being, and it should not be allowed to remain as a cultural norm in a community that claims to be connected to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Now, I know that that sounds outrageous. Like, yeah, Rabbi, you're so out of town, you don't realize how out of town you are. If that's what out of town is, please don't ever make me an in-towner. Well, I, I'll ask you like this and my slight pushback is you find this a lot in the Hasidic community where they want to, where they dress a certain way specifically because they want to feel part of something larger than themselves. And that helps them stay connected to the Rebbe's teachings, to the Rebbe's, um, you know, Hanhaga's practices. And one of the ways that it's really implemented is Lavush, how they dress. So while on one hand I could, totally hear that blue shirt, white shirt, who cares as long as you're wearing a shirt, right? But on the other hand, sometimes uh, clothing could help someone stay connected to something bigger than themselves. Do you buy into that? Absolutely, 100%, very, very much so. And I would even say that somebody who deviates from the norms uh, in their community in order to deviate, by definition, is, uh, is got a problem. I'm talking about the self, the normal self-expression um, that uh, sometimes is uh, suffocated by the overwhelming feeling that you have to fit in, not because you're identifying with a certain approach in Yiddishkeit, but because you can't, you're not allowed to be different. You're not allowed to be different. So that, and um, you know, people suffer from that in, in the in the larger communities. Not everybody. Some people, a significant small minority of people in a big town like Lakewood, that could be thousands who suffer from that kind of thing. Um, I don't think everybody in Lakewood is dressing the way that they, you have to dress in Lakewood in order to identify with admission and its surah of Avodah Hashem. It's just that it's not worth it not to fit in. And so that kind of a thing. I don't want to overdo it. I mean, it's just it's one aspect of Frumkite that's not necessarily... Nowhere in the Torah does it say that you all have to dress the same way. We could we could do a whole episode on this. I was in Lakewood for six years, but yeah. <laughs> jokes aside. Jokes aside. I, just came back, I just came back from Lakewood, uh, I read the Ksuva in Lakewood at a Hasana, and my suit was dark navy, 
And in the wrong light, you could tell that it was a different color than all the other suits, not most, all the other suits in the room. And I felt weird. Like, you know, I, I, I thought maybe somebody else may, maybe should read the Ksuba after me because I was wearing the wrong color, dark navy suit. Anyway, go ahead. In, in the spirit of not um, being politically correct, I want to know if I could ask you on the spot, um, what was your first hurdle? What was the first fire you had to put out? What was the first real challenge for you in the rabbinate? Uh, I'm going to answer you straight and out. It wouldn't like the first real challenge that I can remember is that I naively, as the uh, director of the Hebrew school and the preschool, thought that it would be okay to allow three-year-olds to go to the afternoon program, uh, which we call Judaic enrichment, and not go to the morning program, which was basically general studies for three or four-year-olds. And that was taken as a sign by people here that I was trying to create a from revolution to allow a three-year-old to go and learn Aleph Bays and not go and learn ABC in the morning. That was a raya that I was going to, um, you know, overwhelm the community with, with from uh, standards. And that was at the time taken to be a major challenge and people really uh, fought it hard and emotionally, secret meetings and all kinds of things like that. That was my first hurdle. It wasn't my worst. <laughs> my how, and and how, did, how did you handle it? Poorly. And, how, and, and I should really follow with what did you learn from it? What I learned from it is that people are very scared, easily scared, and you have to do your homework to, to communicate and to assure people, to bring them along slowly and carefully. Um, I definitely absorbed from my father a certain caution um, and I'll tell you, it, I, well, read it, I'll tell you something else. Um, caution seems like a uh, like an unnecessary um, commodity when you're number two. When you're number one, this, the moment I started sitting in my father's chair, I became a very cautious person. When I was number two, I was brash. I knew all the things that had to be done that should be done immediately. But, uh, you know, but once you become responsible for uh, Kahila, you want to bring people along. And that means caution. It means calm. So I learned that one, one thing I learned from that was just you, know, you got to bring people along and you can't uh, you can't assume anything. Um, did I answer your question? I don't remember. Yeah, no, that's that, No, that's great. Now, my next question is Atlanta. It's a pretty diverse community. You have Greenfield Hebrew Academy. You have Torah of Atlanta, you have Yeshiva Atlanta, you have Yeshiva Or Yisrael, and you have Tamima. Um, I know yeah, each- just to just to be accurate, Greenfield and uh, Yeshiva Atlanta are now merged into Atlanta Jewish Academy (AJA). They're all one. AJA. Wow, look what happens yeah. when uh, you haven't been to a city in a while. Because you weren't here. Yeah, I was. <laughs> uh, not sure if my being there would have stopped it either, but um, so. You know, you would say Atlanta didn't move to the right, didn't move to the left. It didn't, it just, you know, how people needed it. It developed, right. But there's always pushback. It's not easy. Growth is hard. There are growing pains. Talk to us, talk to us a little bit about that growth, some of the growing pains. How did you manage it, et cetera? I'll tell you, the, the single most painful thing for me in my life as a Rav was when. Um, this neighborhood went from our shul was the only shul, the only from shul in the neighborhood, to there was a self-styled modern orthodox shul down the road, and I could not understand how and why the group that founded this this the uh, shul needed another shul um, because we weren't not modern and we weren't modern. We were just a shul. And everybody can do what they want and do it how they want. And, um, but that, what, what I failed to understand is that there are people who don't think that way. And the very fact that I naively said, we're not modern, we're not not modern, we're just a show, that itself was unappealing to people and they felt, and it made it difficult. But it was diff- for me, it was difficult to see that, I, that 
I could not be a meaningful leader to everybody. It's very hard to accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in retrospect, Kaddish Baruch Hu did me a great favor because I knew that the people who were in my show wanted what I was offering. And it freed me up, freed me up to be passionate and to be unguarded and not to have to look over my shoulder at everything that I said. You got to zero in a little bit and focus on, you know, what the what your constituencies uh, really needed from you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything, every, every forward step does come at a cost. <laughs> so, for example, um, when the Colo came in um, in 1987, um, they speeded, uh, they, they, by definition, they uh, implied that the highest ideal was to be a yeshiva graduate who wears a black hat on Shabbos and so on and so forth. So by definition, although they were unbelievably effective in relating to people and inspiring people and in learning with people and in, and in helping people move from one spot to another in their Yiddishkeit, at the same time, they helped define the community so that somebody who was concerned about those kinds of things would now feel disconnected. Or another thing that happened, an unintended consequence, before the colo came in, the highest level that you could achieve in Atlanta and the, the, uh, one of the most um, precious uh, status, uh, status that you could achieve would be you were Shema Shabbos. You kept Shabbos. And you would host people who were were Shema Shabbos or who weren't Shema Shabbos at your table. You would have 15, 20, 25 people at your table and you'd sing Yom Zamechuba together and you'd have fun and you'd uh, share Dvar Torah and people ended up, you know, sharing Shabbos with each other. And that was the highest level of Yiddishkeit. It comes the Kolo and sets up a base medrash and says, actually, Talmud Torah is it. And then all of a sudden, uh, and not only that, we're going to be hosting people. So all of a sudden, they took away the crown, unintended. They didn't try to do that, but they established a new standard by existing and by doing their job. And that kind of, and it's to some degree, I think, uh, disempowered some people. Um, if we had to do it over again, I would do it, I would do it again. But it did have some negative consequences, you know. One of the more sensitive parts of, and maybe even controversial, but um, parts of growing up in Atlanta in Beth Jacob was the mechitza, and I know that was like a you know a hot topic for a very very long time. And there was a there there came a point there came a time where it was adkan. You made the change. You made the bold decision. Tell walk us through some of the calculations of, you know, of course having something better would. Be this way, but what cost? You know, at what price? Walk us through some of the calculations that went into that. Well, first of all, I, I have to a, a confession. Um, having been raised in Atlanta was a liability in this process because I had a tremendous amount of personal loyalty to the people who built this show and the people who supported this show while they weren't Shomer Shabbos. Um, there were people who supported this show for 20, 30 years, financially and with time and with leadership, um, who, were, um, who were not Shomer Shabbos, but their children were Shomer Shabbos. So um, I come along and say to myself, we need a better mechitza. Um, and... Um, and by the way, just for, for those who are listening who don't know the history in Atlanta, my father um, uh, raised the Mechitza, I, I believe, three or four times during his tenure. But as it fits perfectly his personality, it was a gradual raise. So each time it was three inches or two inches. And one, as a matter of fact, one time he actually didn't raise the Mechitza, he just put air in it. In other words, he lifted the thing off the ground so there was three inches of air under the mechitza, which meant the mechitza was three inches taller, you know. So, and that was, and I knew that when and if I touched the mechitza, we we're going to do a once and for all fix. We're not going to do this anymore because I'm going to have to fight every five years. You know, if it was good enough till now, Rabbi, how can we have to do it and do it again? 
um, the process uh, that resulted in the mechisa that we have now took nine years. And, um, but, uh, but that was the, that was the final effort. There were efforts that I publicly aborted when a delegation of women came to me and said, Rabbi, you think that the shul hasn't made a difference to us because we're not Shomer Shabbos. You think that the shul isn't our spiritual home. You're about to abandon us by raising the mechitza, which doesn't speak to us at all. And we want you to know that shul has changed our lives. And if maybe we're not fully observant, but our children are observant. And we're proud of that. And now you're, you're willing to abandon us and favor another constituency. So they were wrong. I, I said this loud and clear wherever and whenever I could be addressed. I am not addressing the mechitza in order to satisfy a constituency. This is not Congress, and I'm not a representative, and I'm not elected, and I'm not doing things because some group is pressuring me. Because if that's the case, all you have to do is pressure me harder, and then I'll go that way. And not only that, it was an insult to me. I have my own ideas, and I don't do things because people pressure me. But uh, that's the way people looked at things. But I, some, one of my earlier efforts, um, several years before we finally uh, initiated the final effort, but several years before, I publicly aborted because I said to myself, the shul is not ready to swallow this, and I'm not willing to abandon these people. I think I was correct. But the point is, had I not been born and raised here, and I had not known what they went through and how much they sacrificed uh, in a community where orthodoxy was not popular at all. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, you were nuts to be orthodox, especially if you weren't observant yourself. What are you doing? Why are you supporting the orthodox synagogue and the orthodox rabbi? So I felt responsible to them. In the process of my loyalty to them, I delayed uh, raising the mechitza. And so one can argue that that was uh, not a good thing. Uh, ultimately, we did raise it. Now, I, I want to make a, uh, something very clear about the, the raising the mechitza. People said to me, what are you raising the mechitza for? You have other minyanim in the show. You have the kolo-based matters. People want a better base matter, a better mechitza than in the, in the kolo-based matters. So uh, I said, and I believe that history has borne me out, um, I said that it doesn't matter if people daven in the main shul or not. The main shul says this is for you or it's not for you. And if it says it's not for you, then you're now going to a shul in which the shul really isn't for you, but it will tolerate you and your from kite. The shul's success has always been that the highest level of from kite available in Atlanta can be accommodated here. And those people then lift up others. But if the shul starts being a place where the highest level of frumkite has to go elsewhere to get what it needs, and we have no right to claim uh, to, to be the, a source of growth for people. So it's a very delicate thing. Um, the tendency in, in, uh, in Yiddishkeit is factionalism. Everybody does their own thing. What works here in Atlanta in this shul is that we want people to do their own thing and do it together, rubbing shoulders with other people. So the mechitza upstairs, whether you're going to daven there or not, because the davening starts later or it ends later or the rabbi's drusha goes too long, okay, you don't want to be here, that's fine. But it can't be a shul that you can't daven in because it is so distracting because the mechitza is so low and so, or, because, or you as a wife don't want to come because you can't stand up and daven shman esrei when you came in late because everybody's going to stare at you because they can see over the mechitza. So it can't be a place that if I wanted to daven there, I couldn't daven there. So that would, to me, was a very important statement that the shul needed to make, that we still deserve to have the highest level of frumkite feel comfortable here. And what, what did it for you? Like, where was that? Okay, I think the I think it's, uh, I think we're ready for it. Like, you know, what, when did that click for you? It's a great question. Um, I, I remember the day, it was at nighttime. <laughs> I remember the night before Rosh Hashanah when I said to myself, um, either you're going to do it or you're not. And it took, for me, 
just for me, I wouldn't say for anybody else, but for me, with my history and my connections here and so on and so forth, and my, and my, uh, my, my faith in my father and so on and so forth, the whole thing was a very complex thing. For me, it took tremendous courage. Uh, it was the most courageous thing in the world that I, I ever did was to stand up on Rosh Hashanah, the Fnei Ampa'eda, in the big Rosh Hashanah high holiday crowd, and I devoted two days of drushas, first day and second day, to the mechitza, and that we're going to do that. And Dafka did it that way, which is entirely different than my father's style. My father's style was when they changed the carpeting, when you put the mechitza back in, put a piece of wood under it for three inches and a little mechitza, and then he go on vacation, and then call me and say, by the way, we raised the mechitza three inches, and in case anybody uh, ask you about it, tell him it helps the circulation for the air conditioning, right? Now, he was very wise, what he did, very wise. Um, but he did not ask for a consensus. He just did it. I wanted the show to own its responsibility to have a, a more widely accepted mechitza. So I did it on Rosh Hashanah. And um, there were some negative consequences, definitely. I lost some people, lost some very big donors, not a lot, but that definitely lost them. And they all came to me and they said one way or another, and this is by the way, here, I, I can write a book on how to resign a show because everybody seems to have that book already. I don't have it, but I can see they're reading from the same script. Rabbi, we love you. You'll always be my rabbi, but I need to be part of another show right now because I don't want to be around for any kind of argument. And so, you know, that kind of thing. So, wow, that's, that's the deal. Wow, that's we, that's a lot. <laughs> I have to say, it's <laughs> a lot. Um, one of you referenced this earlier, all the different multiple minyanim. That's something to me that um, that I really appreciated uh, growing up in Atlanta was the diversity in the shul. You had um, you had the what, you know what we called the main minion, I think, right? Yeah. Um, which start? Did it always start at nine o'clock? No, it always started at eight thirty. Right, For I about thought so. thirty-five years it started at eight thirty. Yeah, I thought so. Maybe some people showed up at nine o'clock, but I thought it started at eight thirty. Okay, right. Yeah, I'm not alone in that. And Hashkama was eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Uh, yeah. Eight o'clock Hashkama. First, it was in the Daily Chapel, and then it moved to um, the Atlanta Scholars Kolo Minion. And then I remember you could start off in the Hashkama Minion by the Kolo with Rabbi Pransky. You could make your way up to the main Minion, and maybe on the way. Depending when you walked by, you could see Rabbi Dave Silverman with his beginner's minion. And it was just incredible to see where, um, how far <clears throat> and the diversity that existed on just one Shabbos morning. Um, how did you pull that off? First of all, that ain't nothing. Uh, that, 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 was, uh, that was the good old days. Now we have much more than that. We have a teenage minion, uh-huh. which is attended by more adults than teenagers. Like most what, shows. What what time does it start? Uh, that starts uh, I think nine fifteen. I know. Or nine actually nine thirty. And we have a nine ten. We have a nine ten minion, which is unofficially designed to appeal to young professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, the new phenomenon, relatively new Atlanta phenomenon of young from people who moved here from somewhere else, who didn't become from here and that kind of thing. Um, so we so we have. Uh, you know, we have all that going on. How to pull that off? Um, I think for for standing for these, by standing for these things, and and by and also by the, by being willing to accommodate things. There's a tension between fact breaking things into factions and keeping things together. And um, to some degree, instinctively, I'm not thrilled about about that. Uh, about having different locales for Minyanim on Shabbos morning. I think people gain from being together. On the other hand, I realize that Mashiach hasn't come yet. So people need to have their own style and their own speed and their own schedule. And also, the fact is, as as you develop a firm constituency, so fathers need to lead with, learn with their sons. Okay, so they want to finish davening earlier so that they can sit down and learn with their sons. What's wrong with that? You know, so not everybody has to follow the old model. You know, when uh, when people were not from, their Shabbos was over when they left 
after Musaf. So they didn't mind sticking around until 12 o'clock mm-hmm. because that was Shabbos was over at 12 o'clock, you know. But for somebody who has a whole Shabbos, so they want to learn with their son before they go home, you know, that kind of thing, as an example. Mm-hmm. What do you wish congregants were more mindful of? First of all, you ask great questions. That's really, uh, those are good questions. What do I wish congregants were more mindful of? Um, I, I do wish that they were more mindful of the, what they can offer other people. And I don't mean help them when they have a baby or give them a meal during Cheshvan when they're saying Shiva. Everybody wants to do that. And that's wonderful. It's beautiful that they do that. It, it's beautiful. I'm talking about, I wish that Balabatim understood that their presence makes a difference to other people. Uh, I think the Balabatim uh, like, uh, think of themselves as consumers. They join a shul in order to get what the shul offers. That is the lowest level of participation. I say join a shul in order to offer yourself to others. Because when you come to Davin, you are making an environment for somebody else. Think of it that way. Uh, so yeah, the expression is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to grab a minion from Mincha. That means the minion is there, and now you're going to get it for you. No, go make a minion from Mincha so somebody else can have a minion. Mm-hmm. Right? And, 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 and when you daven, daven with the idea that you're creating a surah of tefillah for other people. And when you come to shul, choose the minion in which your presence will make the biggest difference, not how your Shabbos will be easier for you, where your nap will be longer, but that's, but what do I want? Why do I want, Balabatim are to be admired. They work hard all week long. They struggle. They sacrificially spend tons of extra money on education of their children, on kosher and so on and so forth, and are living in a neighborhood where houses are twice as expensive as they would be if they lived 20 miles away. And they do that so that they can have a show. And then comes along Rabbi Feldman, and he wants them to be, many rabbis who are living their lives on Shabbos for everybody else. It's not realistic, but you asked me what I wish. That's what I wish. I <laughs> okay. Wish if I had a, if I were to ask the question in the reverse, um, if I were to go around to different congregants and say, what do you wish Rabbi Feldman would do or not do or say more of? And maybe, you know, not because you're guessing, maybe because you hear it, but what do you think that would be? I think by now they've given up, so they don't wish anything anymore. They've given up. But when they used to wish things, <laughs> when there was hope uh, that I might change, first of all, I think that they would wish that I'd be more accessible. I think that people politely, if still, I get this, Rabbi, I know you're busy, but, or I hate to bother you, but. And they don't realize from my point of view, you're not bothering me. I'm here for that. But I think people would wish that I'd be more accessible uh, more involved in their lives, that I would know their children's names, um, and so on and so forth. I think that they wish that. Um, and then um, there might have been a time, I think, where people would wish I'd be a little bit more patient and less less insistent, less intensely driven for certain things. Um I think that that's changed. I think I think either with age I've changed, or, or like I say, they've given up. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then and there then there are people who know there are certain deficits that I have, and they don't wish I'm different. They, that's just the way he is. Except, so, yeah, except this. Right now, nobody expects to come into my office and find my desk to be neatly arranged. An organized yeah. mess. Yeah, a disorganized mess. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there, are, I'm sure there are deficits, but I think they've, you know, at this point it's been a, it's a, it's like, it's a long marriage. So they've kind of given up. Uh-huh. And what, what do you think is, what is, what are you most proud of in your career in Atlanta? What, you know, something that, you know, it's like a badge of honor for you. Without a doubt, I am most proud of the fact that I have worked with people who are, greater than me in one aspect or another and I have given them free reign and not crowded their space 
because I'm the rabbi and I have to be seen and be, you know, and, and be the center of attention. I am very, very proud of the fact that I stayed out of the way and let great people do great things. And I guess what? I found out a secret. I get the credit anyway. So matter of fact, I only get the credit if I stay out of the way. If I'm crowding myself in all the time, I don't get the credit because then it looks like I'm desperate for credit. Can, so, can, I, can I press yeah, you for details? Can I get, press you for examples? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Rabbi Menachem Deutsch is a genius builder. He was the head of the Kolel. Um, Rabbi Pransky is a Tamad Chacham, a high-class Tamad Chacham. Rabbi Dave Silverman, in addition to his learning, is just an unbelievably magnetic personality. I would like to be like Dave Silverman. I'd like to be like Menachem Deutsch. I'd like to be like Daniel Pransky. I'm not. But what I am, that they'll never be, is somebody who can field all of them and tolerate it. <laughs> okay, so that's, I, so that's what I take credit for. On my matzeva, I, want to say, I wanted to say he stayed out of the way. Wow, I love that. Um, on a more serious note, um, yeah. a harder topic to discuss, um, my father forwarded me an email that you sent out after the levaya of a very tragic situation where a young boy took his own life. And I know that's not the first time um, that's happened in the community. It's, it's just, it's a magefa. It's really a plague, um, the mental health crisis. Um, can you talk to, to us a little bit about how, how is the community dealing with that? Um, what do you, you know, from the leadership and all the way down to all the, you know, congregants? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, the scariest thing about these things is that um, you, one is afraid that there are other people who are, God forbid, candidates for that who might be triggered or not triggered. But hey, if this happened here, where else is it going to happen? You know, one of the questions I got more than once was, why does this keep on happening? Right. The language of, the language of keep on happening makes it sound like there's a force in the world that it like, you know, like, like a virus, a virus spreads. So this keeps on happening. It's like there's a force called taking one's own life and it keeps on happening. So um, that's the scariest thing for people. And, and gee, may, I don't know, maybe God forbid my own teenager who looks okay, but they're, you know, he's been a little bit quiet. He's got, constantly got the earphones on and he's in his room a lot. And maybe I don't know what's going on with him. And so it's scary. It's a very unsettling. Um, so that's the, the scare. How we're dealing with it is... Um, like everywhere else, we try to be more sensitive, try to heighten awareness of, of <clears throat> mental illness. In my own little small way, I try to destigmatize the idea of mental illness. Mental illness, you know, we still conjures up deep in our consciousness notions of some kind of a spazzed out person who's, uh, who can't even walk straight. And uh, what we have to realize is that there's a tremendous amount of mental illness uh, in the hearts and minds of people who are wonderful people. Um, um, there, are, there are people who are chronically depressed who do wonderful things. Um, at, the, at the funeral here, I talked about the light that this person was to so many people and the love that he gave and the love that he received. And I said, and he had mental illness. And I also said, there are people here who uh, may be mentally ill, and they're wonderful people. So we have to, that's what, that's what it means to destigmatize mental illness. It's very, you know, mental illness is a very broad term, but people have, um, carry around many, many different um, challenges in their perception of themselves and perception of others that's um, you know when it's out of touch with reality it's it's a mental illness so uh, that's you know so we had uh, we brought in uh, high lifeline shared uh, by dr fox with us was here for private meetings and public meetings with teachers and with parents and with community members and with, with the family and so on and so forth that's just a start frankly um i'm actually this is a very important area, but there's another area that's even more important, which is the non-crisis uh, um, people, 
meaning that there are a lot of people who don't are not living in crisis and don't have mental illness, but I believe that it is harder and harder for uh, an American family to live an authentically Jewish life in this culture. And um, I don't think that we have we have we can safely assume that people know how to run a house of shalom bias. I don't think we can safely assume that people know how to raise their children. I don't think we can safely assume that people know how to get through a Shabbos afternoon with young children without just turning them loose to wander the neighborhood and let anybody else raise them or let the street raise them because there's so many other from kids who are turned loose by their parents. So, you know, so um, we have some major challenges ahead. How do we, how do we raise ourselves as a non-mentally ill community uh, and yet take the teachings of our Torah and make them work for us in our day-to-day living? How do we get along with each other? How do we get along husband and wife? How do we have the home become a place of nurture where being at home actually makes you a stronger person as opposed to being at home as a place where you go to recharge your cell phone battery and uh, where you go to sleep and where you go to change your clothes. Uh, it used to be that a home is actually a source of nurture. It is not now because when the door closes, you still have the outside world in your ear. So it's a major challenge and we have to deal with that. So I have a vision of the show actually um, developing almost a division of the show uh, uh, that offers ongoing um, Jewish life training, um, which is different than a, than a resource for mental health crises and a referral line for people who are in need trouble. That has to happen. But we also have to um, make sure that the, the Torah living can actually be integrated into real life uh, in the face of major challenges. More pro- sounds like a more proactive approach. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and we uh, we discussed this. I'll reference an earlier episode we did um, with Dr. Lewin Fon, the uh, the chair, Department of Psychiatry of the Ohio State University, and also the program director for the Jeffrey Schottenstein uh, Resiliency Program. And um, resiliency, you know, life's trials and tribulations are not escapable. But um, how do we build resiliency? Is something that we have to have a special focus on. Um, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Feldman, on maybe on a lighter note, I couldn't end this interview without asking you one of the most important questions you'll ever field. And that is, is the tomahawk chop racist? <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. It's a good, it's a, it's a great question. Um, all I know is, that uh, uh, first of all, as a as a Braves fan, I'll be honest, I, I've detoxed, as so I've I've tried to disengage from the Browns. I, I, I talk about racist. I'm mad at the Atlanta Braves because they moved their stadium from downtown Atlanta <laughs> uh, to Cobb County. It used to a, be it used to be a simple Marta tr- uh, ride, and uh, now you have to go on a whole a, yeah, a, and, then, a whole and, then, and, and then you have to park. You have to park, and then embark on a trek to get to the stadium from the parking lot right i actually i once went i won't mention who i took i took somebody to a game uh it was actually the last game i went to and from the parking lot i had to get an uber to get to the stadium <laughs> it's crazy anyways i'm mad at them major league baseball boycotted uh atlanta they took the all-star game all-star out of Atlanta. Game. right i forgot why or what was wrong with this georgia voting law Oh, Georgia voting law, unbelievable, absolute shaker. It's Mama shaker, and but uh, but meanwhile they should have boycotted the Braves because the Braves are racist because they left downtown Atlanta and went to Cobb County, which is uh-huh. at least it used to be a Republican county, certainly uh-huh. all white. So uh-huh. uh, I'm mad at them for that. I hear. I hear, you know, on Colos, we're not supposed to take positions, but I will take the liberty and say it's not racist. And when you talk about it and consider it to be racist, I think you don't do a self a service for racism. But in any event, <laughs> as we speak, they're still leading the National League uh, East Division and right. uh, and hopefully uh, we'll keep chopping. Yeah, Rabbi Feldman, 
this has been an honor. It's been a, a great privilege to have you on. Um, you know, not every day do I get to have an interview where I know I could just ask anything and everything. So it was a real privilege. Um, and our bracha to you is to continue leading Atlanta Kahila uh, for many, many years with all the brachas and all the unique aspects of the community till the coming of Mashiach. Amen. Amen. It's a pleasure to talk to you and you're, you're a great interviewer. They are. Thank you. Be well. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.